Wow, thank you, choir. Both the choir behind me and the choir in front of me. There's nothing like worship to consummate the truths of the faith in our hearts. Our work we're going to see today and our worth, as we just sang, our work and our worth are in him and through him. And we can find our all in him at every moment of the day, which is the secret of the victorious Christian walk. You'll find it in the book of Romans if you'll turn there to Romans chapter 9. Romans 9, and we'll be starting today in verse 30. We're going to look today at what you might call the tyranny of the self-made identity. The tyranny of the self-made identity, otherwise known in biblical terms as works righteousness. Where you feel like who you are stands or falls on your works, on what you do, on your grades at school maybe, or on being good at sports, or uh, on your position at church, or on saying the right things, or uh, or on getting the right people to like you, or on climbing the corporate ladder. Where is your fundamental work and worth? And if truth be told, sometimes it's easy to think that we even have to impress God maybe on a regular basis, because our acceptance so easily, if you're anything like me, is based on our performance. We're going to see today that the self-made identity where acceptance is based on performance is a tyranny compared to the liberty that comes by focusing on Christ, compared to the liberty that comes when the indwelling spirit of the living Christ brings your work to life and your worth to life as the spirit of the living God falls fresh on you, to which you can only say, as we'll see, and as we sang, breathe on me, breath of God. That's all I need. Fill me with life anew. I'm desperate for you. It's in Romans chapter 9, and we'll be starting today in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God for them is their salvation. He's talking about the Jews. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, For not knowing about God's righteousness and as seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. And good luck at doing that. The Jews that Paul is... uh, talking about here remind me of something that my sister and I experienced way back in the day, back in the 70s. They remind me of the Prigoni, of the Prigoni statues. Prigoni is Italian for prisoners. 
the prisoners that my sister saw back in 1976 when my, we took a year out of college to bicycle uh, and camp through Europe and then to spend some time in Asia where my folks were missionaries in Singapore. And one of the countries that we enjoyed most of all was Italy. And of all the places in Italy that we most enjoyed, it's got to be for us Florence that we really fell in love with, this jewel of a town with this cathedral that in the morning mist like, is just kind of rising out of the mist. It was in Florence, Italy, in the uh, gallery of the academy, that we saw Michelangelo's uh, statue of David, which he finished, believe it or not, when he was 26 years old. It's one of the greatest sculptures ever created, and it literally takes your your, uh, breath away. It epitomized the humanism of his day with this, the heroic scale uh, of uh, David, uh, the, the, his superhuman beauty and power. That there's this kind of this swelling form uh, of uh, volume that Michelangelo gave him. He was, he was almost vibrant with pent-up energy, almost alive. It's like he's look, looking off into the future with tremendous virility and you know, prowess and, and pride. Interestingly, though, his, uh, his hands and his feet, uh, masterpiece though it was, his hands and his feet and his head are much larger proportionately than they ought to be given the size of the body. And that was intentional on Michelangelo's part because his hands and his feet and his head that are so large gives you the feeling that man can uh, do anything and go anywhere. It's the self-made man of the Renaissance. But I think what's most telling about David is his face. Because if you look carefully at his eyes, you'll see something that's obvious once you notice it. They're, they're deeply disturbed. They're, they're like haunted. And his brow is furrowed. It's wrinkled. It's worried. It's like dark and it's uh, pensive and it's wondering as he looks off into the future that he's responsible for. You sense the burden of the self-made man because it's all up to him. Now, you can't get into the room where David is without going through a long hallway. A hallway lined with what I mentioned at the beginning, the Prigoni statutes, which again is Italian for prisoners. These are the ones that for some reason Michelangelo left Incomplete. He left undone. One of them has a, this head, this nothing but a block of stone, and he's got these crude legs and crude arms that are pushing up against this mass of marble, you know, that's like encasing his head as though he's trying to break free. There's another uh, block with just half the front of a figure showing, and the back half uh, is still in the stone, and it's like he's straining, he's stretching to break free of the stone. It's a whole gallery of tortured figures uh, trying to break free, all of them leading up to the figure that has made it, the great statue of David, who has such a haunted look. Today we're going to be looking at self-made men and at the half-made men who'd like to be self-made but they don't have what it takes to fulfill that desire. We're gonna be looking today really at each and every one of us. 
at one time or another, at the tyranny, the impossibility of works righteousness, trying to win acceptance by laboring on your own to turn yourself into what someone wants you to be or into what God wants you to be or to something that you want to be. Such people either you know, soar with pride if they end up looking like David, which a few do, a few Christians do, or they crash with despair if they end up like the prigoni, the prisoners, because only God can bring your work and your worth to life. It's all stone without him. Doesn't matter how long or how hard you, you labor, only he can do it. To which we can only say, as we'll see, and as we sang, breathe, breathe on me, breath of life. Fill me by the power of your spirit in me with life anew. I'm lost without you. Again, it's in Romans 9, and let's unpack it a bit, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. You might say, putting this in the cultural context, that the Gentiles were the prigoni. They were the prisoners of their day, at least in the view of the Jews. And then something happened and they came to life. The Jews, on the other hand, were the, were the spiritual Davids you know, of their day, but they stayed hard as stone. To put it in context, we're moving today uh, in Romans 9, 10, and 11 from Israel's separation to our inclusion. From the question of how God, if you remember, could reject his own chosen people if it's really true that nothing can separate us from his love. We move from God's rejection of the Jews to his acceptance of the Gentiles that his uh, rejection of the Jews made possible. Because as we've seen, Paul's out to prove that God is, is not tyrannically sovereign, he's mercifully sovereign. So he hardens some so he can soften others so that he can soften them again. We move to the inclusion, the inclusion of the Gentiles that came thanks to Israel's separation. And Paul begins by telling us why Israel was rejected and why we were accepted. We've, we've already seen that just because they were born Jews doesn't mean they were true Jews. And so God was rejecting those who weren't really Israelites in the first place. That was at the beginning of chapter 9. And now at the end of the chapter, in our verses for today, he tells us what it took to be a spiritual Jew, a true child of God, and how it was uh, in God's mercy that the Gentiles became his children in place of the Jews. Again, verse 30, and this time I'll read it in the New Living Translation, so just sit back and listen. Well then, what shall we say about these things? Just this, the Gentiles have been made right with God by faith, even though they were not seeking him. But Jews who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law and being good instead of by depending on faith in Christ. 
And in so doing, they became so hardened by pride, at least many of them did, that they were crushed, they had to be crushed by the stumbling stone when he came rolling along in order to break them so they could be filled with him. And that stumbling stone is Christ. Reading on verse 33, just as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, which is Christ, and he who believes in his work will not be disappointed as you will be disappointed if you live by faith in your work. That's the idea. Paul goes on to show us, first, the motivation of uh, works righteousness. And he leads up to it by starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. First, he breaks us down so that he can fill us up. So this week will be the breaking, and we'll see how the filling happens. Chapter 10, verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God, to God for them, is their salvation. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Rather, it was a zeal that was in accordance with ignorance and pride of God's way. Verse 3, and now he's setting them straight. For not knowing God's righteousness and a seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And here we come to the heart of it. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not a list of do's and don'ts. He fulfilled them all. The word end here in the Greek means two things. It means Christ is the goal of the law and it's how we get to the goal, to the end. He's the very picture of it. He's the very picture of what we're to become and the very power by which we become it through the Holy Spirit in us. Because when we believe in him, he breathes on us. He breathes himself into us so that he can come through us. To live in us and to fulfill his law through us. For the Jews, it was external. For us, it's supposed to be internal. They were hammering away, you know, from the outside in, carving themselves, trying to attain to this external standard that's out there, the law, subjecting themselves to the righteousness of the law. But no matter how good they ended up looking, they were still hard as rock, cold as stone. Whitewashed tombs, as Christ said, tombs in the form of dead men, just like David was, or Michelangelo's David. We, on the other hand, are to subject ourselves to the righteousness of God. And we do that by faith as we let him work from the inside out. As we look to his person and rely on his work, he becomes our righteousness. And when we do, when we come to him, Peter says, as the living stone, we also, presto changeo, become living stones, no longer statues. Unlike the Jews... As Paul says in verse 31, this time of the New Living Translation, we try, who tried hard to get right with God by keeping the law, but they never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law and being good instead of by depending on faith in Christ. And you do that by, just like when you were saved, we're sanctified in the same way by turning to him and calling to him as we'll see in chapter 10. You turn to him and you just pray. Help me, Lord, save me. This is all over the place in scripture as well as in the great devotional literature of our faith. F.R. Havergal 
composed this prayer, which is like a poem. And sometimes I like to pray this at the beginning of the day to get in the right posture of faith righteousness. He said, live out your life within me, O Jesus, King of kings. Be yourself the answer to all my questionings. Live out your life within me, and all things have your way. I, the transparent medium, your glory to display. The temple, my temple, has been yielded and turned from sin. Let your Shekinah glory flash forth from within, and all the earth keep silent. This body henceforth be your humble, docile servant, moved only by thee. My members every moment held subject to your call, ready to have you use them or not be used at all, held without restless longing or strain or stress or fret or chafing at your dealings or thoughts of vain regret. And then he closes it. May I be restful, calm, and pliant. From bender bias free, Permitting you to settle where you have use of me. Oh, live out your life within me. Jesus, King of Kings. That's faith righteousness. Different saints put it in different ways and give us a different handle on it. To pursue righteousness by faith not works is to do what Lilas Trotter did. She was the great missionary to North Africa about 100 years ago. And and uh, she wrote a classic called A Blossom in the Desert. Um, a book of devotional meditations, and I love this one. This one is called Sails in the Wind. She said, I am seeing more and more that we begin to learn what it is to walk by faith when we learn to spread out all that is against us, all our physical weakness, loss of mental power, spiritual inability, all that is against us inwardly and outward, when we learn to spread out all that is against us as sails to the wind, then we know what it means to walk by faith. As we spread out all that is against us as sails to the wind and expect them to be vehicles for the power of Christ to rest on us, She says it's so simple and self-evident, but so long in fulfilling. The righteousness, the acceptance, the fullness that comes by faith, not by works. To pursue him by faith is to turn to him and to say to him, oh, breathe, breathe on me, breath of life. Fill me with life anew that meets this situation. We're going to cycle back to this again when we look at the simplicity of faith righteousness, not just to be saved, but to be sanctified later on in chapter 10. And we'll see just how it happens and look again at how practically to do it because this is so fundamentally important. But for now, this week, we're going to follow Paul's cue to tee that up, to to want to do it and to keep doing it. We need to be inoculated against doing it all on our own by remembering the tyranny of works righteousness, which is what Paul's talking about here. Back to verse 3. For not knowing God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Seeking to establish a righteousness of their own. That's a laboring way of saying it in, in the Greek. And it, intimate, it kind of intimates that the motivation of works righteousness is pride. The pride of the self-made man who's accomplished something of his own and on his own. 
who postures and poses for all the world to see, which we all do to some degree. Which is precisely the Pharisees' problem. That's why Christ said to them, how can you believe me when you receive glory from men? John 5, 44. That is, how can you subject yourself to God's righteousness? How can you look to his acceptance when you're so enslaved to man's acceptance? And who doesn't struggle with that? How can you subject yourselves to God doing anything through you when you're so subjected to the praise and the approval that comes through what you're doing on your own? Wesley Nelson, another great devotional writer, had another angle on it. He put it this way. There would be nothing offensive about a way that would permit us to see ourselves as becoming better and better Christians. Achieving greater and greater success in devotion, morals, service, and witnessing. It would be quite challenging and satisfying to human nature. Such a way of achievement, however, contains the seeds of sinfulness within itself, for it still revolves around ourselves. God is still left on the periphery of life to be used as a lever to help self-achieve what it desires. Since such a way does not make it possible to honor God as God, it cannot break the power of sin. And then he concludes, even in the Christian, man's sinfulness and not honoring God as God often persists in the form of assuming some credit deep down for what seems to be a superior devotion. When we serve God faithfully and devoutly and feel we are more acceptable to God than someone else, we show an attitude of pride in works that can nullify the grace relationship, the faith relationship. And without that grace relationship, without that faith relationship where it's all, not me, but from him and through him and to him, even Christians can become cold as stone or broken. The motivation of works righteousness is a kind of pride that for the sake of the glory of man will not submit itself to the righteousness of God so it's because it's so consumed about what other people are thinking. Will not submit itself to the righteousness of God with sails to the wind. All my inadequacies. Why? Well, again, seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Which brings us to our last verse for today, one which takes us from the motivation, the motivation of accomplishment on our own to what it leads to, and that is the desperation. The furled look of Michelangelo's David the desperation of our imprisonment, which you'll find in a single verse, the next verse, our last verse for today, verse five. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. And good luck at that. That's the idea here. This is a curse. The message version puts it this way. Anyone who insists on using the law code to live right before God soon discovers it's not so easy. Every detail of life is regulated by fine print. And the Jews were the epitome of this. 
For them, living by the law meant to begin with living by strict obedience to the 681 provisions of the Old Testament law code. And then literally tens of thousands of traditions that grew out of it. There are over 500, get, get this, there are over 500 laws based on the single command to rest on the Sabbath. You know, they even turn rest into work. It's almost a curse, it's a judgment, a curse. It's, it's as in, okay, I'll give you what you've chosen. If you choose a standard of perfection on your own, you shall live under the tyranny of that standard. That's the idea of this last verse, verse five. The righteousness based on the law uses external measures exclusively. Looking at the specifications for the sculpture out there as we strive to attain to conformity, which is a tyranny. Rather than looking to the master, which is liberty and true glory. Verses four and five go together. Together they ask the question, what are you going to live by? By some law or by Christ who is the end of the law? In the law you've got the specifications of the master, of the masterpiece. But the problem is that you can't live by that law because you're not the master. Right? And so you'll never attain to conformity. But Christ is the master and he's the masterpiece And this master behind the masterpiece is in you to turn you into a masterpiece too. Like sails in the wind. And you attain not to conformity, which you'll never meet, but to his glory. Step by step through life. Paul's talking about the impossible standard of righteousness, because with works righteousness, with a performance-based acceptance, nothing you do is ever enough. Pride is never satisfied, and insecurity and inferiority are like these bottomless pits that no matter what your performance, you're never going to fill it. And for them, it became a grievous burden imposed by the scribes and the Pharisees. And and so Christ said, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, these poor pregonies. And what a picture that created. When, When Christ looked out over Israel, he saw people under the yoke of the law, living under the tyranny of this external standard of perfection, the righteousness of the law. He saw these you know, spiritual Davids posturing and posing in the temple and on the street corners and all over the place who were so full of themselves. And he saw these poor prisoners that you had to pass by to get to the temple with heavy loads on their shoulders with blocks for heads, you know, and half-formed bodies who couldn't possibly attain to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees because they had to make a living. And in any case, they were all dead too. And I can't help but think that that's what many churches look like as well, or at least some in many churches, maybe with all of us because we all tend to do this. And to the Davids of his day and of our day, he'd say, woe to you, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. And to the prisoners of his day and our day, he'd say, oh, Prigoni, I came to set the prisoners free. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just come to me, 
and call on me. You know, it's so easy, if you're anything like me, to fall back into works righteousness, working to win God's acceptance by, on your own by laboring to turn yourself into what he wants, by self-effort as though it's all up to you, or working to win the acceptance of others as though they were God, by laboring to turn yourself into what they want. Or working to turn yourself into God, whether by the godlike standards of the world, whatever that might be, whether by climbing the corporate ladder or by winning popularity you know, at school or by getting good grades or by having it all in the bank or having it all in the head or uh, theologically or through clothes or cars or beautiful bodies or degrees or promotion or by your own success in business. It's a tyranny in the end. Such self-effort so easily, so subtly breaks the faith relationship, the grace relationship. It so easily becomes a yoke of slavery that begins in pride and ends in imprisonment under the tyranny of a standard that won't let you go. Finding our worth apart from him, finding finding it in our work, apart from him. Truly, it's like a spell that we can't break unless we come to him with a broken heart and say, breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me through my brokenness, my inadequacies, with life anew. You know, Michelangelo was under that spell and he was tyrannized. He was a proud man. I'd probably be proud too if I were him. I'm proud and I'm just me. (laughs) Or I can be. He was a proud man and so he was a tormented man. His goal literally was to create an immortal statue. He was haunted by this desire to free a living form from the marble. He knew he couldn't do it, but he couldn't stop trying which is the classic double bind of works righteousness. You gotta do it, but you can't do it. There's only one person who can break that spell. We saw this too back in 1976. My sister and I also went to Rome where we visited uh, St. Peter's Basilica. This is where you can see Michelangelo's statue of Moses, which is universally acclaimed as his greatest work. Of course, he wasn't satisfied with it. And so when it was done, he looked it over, and in a fit of rage, he struck the stone and said, why do you not speak? You can never attain to these things. Ever felt that way about your own life, what you do? To this day, there's a long, narrow gouge on the knee of his greatest masterpiece where he struck it and said, why do you not speak? Pursuing a law of righteousness, they did not arrive at that law. And how do you arrive at it? How do you avoid the haunted look of Michelangelo's David as you walk through life, who had the whole world on his shoulders? Well, we'll continue with this, um, but for today, the bottom line is this. Before you do anything by way of obedience or performance, just come to him and call on him with your abject need, just like when you were saved. 
Come to him in your desperation and call on him for your transformation to meet the needs of this hour, the challenges, whatever's in front of you. As you spread your sails to the wind. Do it all through the day and incrementally, but inexorably, you'll attain to his glory. Not yours, but his. Let me close with this. You know, I'll never forget the scene at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by, by C.S. Lewis. Many, if not most of you, have probably read it. At the beginning of the story, the white witch, who represents Satan, turned all these poor creatures, these talking creatures, into statues. You might call it the spell of works righteousness, uh, the same spell that Satan casts on us. Aslan, of course, represents Christ, and he had finally come back to Narnia to set things right, and he comes to the courtyard of the witch's castle, and he does something with these statutes that lets us see suddenly what's happening to us incrementally as we pursue the righteousness of faith from faith unto faith, step by step through life, as Paul says in Romans 1. It happens to us in slow motion as we come to him in our desperation and look to him for our transformation as we spread our sails to the wind. It happens so slowly, in fact, that it's easy to feel like nothing's happening. But one day when we're in our glory, looking back on you know, this sweep of our story, we'll see what the children did when, uh, uh, in this castle that was filled with Prigoni. So here it is in fast motion. You might call it time-lapsed photography. Uh, From the beginning to the end of our story, as more and more we're transformed into glory. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All those stone animals and people too. It's like a museum. Hush, said Susan. Aslan's doing something. He was indeed. He had bounded up to the stone lion and he breathed on him. Then without waiting a moment, he whisked round, almost as if he had been a cat chasing its tail, and breathed also on the stone dwarf, which, if you remember, was standing a few feet from the lion with his back to him. Then he pounced on a stone dryad which stood beyond the dwarf, turned rapidly aside to deal with the stone rabbit on his right, and rushed on to the two centaurs. But at that moment, Lucy said, Oh, Susan, look at the lion. And when she looked, she saw a tiny streak of gold begin to run along its white marble back. Then it spread. Then the color seemed to lick all over him as a flame licks all over a bit of paper. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened his great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a prodigious yawn. And now his hind legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking round him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. Of course, the children's eyes turned to follow the lion. But soon, uh, but, but the sight they saw was so wonderful that they soon forgot about him. Everywhere, statues were coming to life. 
The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and dancing round him till he was almost hidden in the crowd. Instead of all that deadly white, the courtyard was now a blaze of colors. Glossy chestnut sides of centaurs, indigo horns of unicorns, dazzling plumage of birds, reddy brown of foxes, dogs, and satyrs, yellow stockings and crimson hoods of dwarves. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place rang with the sound of happy roarings, brayings, yelpings, barkings, squealings, cooings, neighings, stampings, shouts, hurrahs, and shouts, and songs, and laughter. Now, said Aslan, for the inside of this house, look alive, everyone, upstairs and downstairs and in my lady's chamber, leave no corner unsearched. You never know where some poor prisoner may be concealed. Indeed, you never know where some poor prisoner may be concealed. All it took was his breath of life, the spirit of the living God. As the worship leaders come forward, for this to happen, we need to come to him in our desperation and call on him for our transformation as we spread our sails to the wind. So we thought we'd do that right now. Let's set our sails to the wind as we all stand and sing, O breath of life, come sweeping through us.